John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And in fact, this is part two of a show that we're doing regarding the on-ground collision between a JAL Airbus A350 and a Coast Guard, Japanese Coast Guard-8 aircraft at Haneda Airport or Tokyo International. And from the last show, we were talking about the ground response as far as firefighting. We had uh, we had our subject matter expert on, and we were talking about how they were fighting the fire and, of course, the survival and the egress of those passengers, because this was one of those types of accidents that we can all learn from. The evacuation happened with an airplane on fire, but there were no injuries to those folks getting off the airplane. So with this particular show, we want to get more into what the investigators are going to be looking at now with regard to the operational aspects, not only of the JAL flight crew, but the Coast Guard crew and the Dash 8 and, of course, air traffic control. But then again, we also need to look at what was going on on the airport surface at the time. So, John, when uh, you know now that we've gotten a little more information, we do know now that uh, the Dash 8 was squarely on the runway, which was not where the airplane should have been holding, according to air traffic control. Right. Well, according to the, the tower tapes and the, the read of those, it's clear that the crew on the on the coast, the Coast Guard airplane, the Japanese Coast Guard airplane. Uh, had contacted ground control, had gotten clearance uh, to taxi, and they also had, were in contact with the tower that gave him the tower clearance to, to get in position and hold. No, no, not into position and hold. They were on a taxiway, and they were supposed to hold short. Right, hold short, but that the holding position is what I meant. Yes. Right, so they didn't. Uh, some confusion may have existed there because of the hold line is illuminated but it was not working this night and they meant they may have been looking for the illuminated uh, bar but in any event they turned and positioned themselves on the center line of the runway 1200 feet roughly from the touchdown point which is a considered in the u.s a midfield takeoff it's not at the end of the runway and uh, that would be illegal in the united states they no longer do that because it mirrors the accident that we had 
in Los Angeles between a USAF 737 and a a, uh, a small commuter airline. Small commuter airline. Yeah. So uh, we know from that accident, after extensive work, and in fact, I was actually on the helicopter at one point in time, and that airplane on the center line like that is virtually invisible at that time of day. And so this this crew in the Japan Airlines uh, airplane really had very little opportunity to see that airplane on the runway. They're not looking down the runway. They're looking at the touchdown point if they're looking at all. And uh, it's actually the responsibility here in the United States of the air traffic controller because of ground radar to keep track of that airplane where, wherever it is to make sure the runway is free of anything, not just airplanes, but vehicles, anything. So there's a, there's a possibility of at least two or maybe even three breakdowns, personnel breakdowns, uh, up to this point of the accident. And, and now he's in position on the runway where he's not supposed to be. He's obviously not been monitoring the frequency because there's been communication between the JAL and the tower who just minutes ago cleared him to land, and he should have been paying attention to that. And... So all those opportunities to prevent this accident were missed by at least two and possibly three different people. And for those of you who are uh, watching the video version of this, um, we've included some graphics in the last show that showed from a distance the A350 landing on the runway and the explosion happening. And we have a, a still shot from overhead that clearly shows basically the entire runway. And you can see where the wreckage of the, of the Dash 8 is, is roughly uh, just past the touchdown zone. And it's the sort of thing where if they had not been there, if they had been at the beginning of the runway, I'm not saying they would have uh, cleared the aircraft entirely. But as John was saying, having that aircraft in that position is not something that's allowed in the United States any longer. And and when you talk about the visual cues, you know, the crew, like you said, isn't looking, you know, at the end of the runway. They're, they're, their view is, you know, towards the touchdown zone. And even with this airplane in the touchdown zone, because you're looking at that dash eight from behind, you're not going to see all of the lights that are on that airplane. And there's about five or six. Of course, you're going to have the red and uh, green position lights. You're going to have a white light. You could have a rotating beacon on uh, on both the tail and the belly of the airplane. But that doesn't really stand out prominently in the eyes of the JAL crew because they are blended in with the runway lights, the taxiway lights, the adjoining lights, and of course, you know, all the green lead-in lights and um, and the white lights of, of the, uh, the runway itself. So there's a menagerie of lights that it would be very hard for the eye to catch. If they had had their strobes on, yes, that may catch someone's attention. But when you have an airplane that is sitting technically waiting to move into position you don't have your strobes on while you're sitting on the ground for you know obvious reasons it's a night operation and you're not night blinding uh, any of the pilots and and that flashing strobe will do that quite easily so one of the other aspects that uh, the investigators will be looking at with the a350 and its advanced technology is the use of a hud or heads-up display that's going to be a key because if this flight crew was using a HUD, now that adds to the clutter. Not only do you have the site picture of the runway and all the lights, 
but now looking through a HUD, you have a lot of flight-related information. And because of the coloring of the HUD, you, you aren't going to see a runway, uh, an airplane sitting on a runway any more prominent than you would basically with the naked eye looking out the window. Could that be a help? Could that be a hindrance? The, the investigators are going to have to look at that. But John, you brought up a good point. Where was the air traffic controller? They do have surface radar or uh, what we call as the X here in the States, where they can actually monitor the movement of vehicles, not just airplanes, but any other vehicle on the surface of the airport to see where they are. And why wasn't somebody looking to see if the uh, if the Dash 8 was sitting on the runway instead of in the position they were supposed to hold in, which was at Charlie 5, short of the runway? So investigators are going to really have to, to look at what was going on in the air traffic control tower, what the coordination was between those controllers, and what were they doing? What were they looking at? Is this a case of distraction? Is it a case of complacency? Those are the kinds of human elements, just initial blush. But then you get into some of the other things. Todd, we were talking about, you know, how did that JAL airplane actually strike the Dash 8? Was the airplane on the ground? Was it still airborne as far as the uh, the A350? From the indications of the radome, it looks like maybe the nose of that aircraft struck the T-tail or the upper horizontal stabilizer of the Dash 8 and, of course, ran over it and through it. But was the airplane airborne or had they already touched down and were on just the mains with the nose still up? I mean, that in, in looking at the crash dynamics and the reconstruction of the uh, the impact attitudes will give a lot of information to the investigators about what the visual acuity may have been with that JAL crew. And there's a couple of other things, you know, when we look at TCAS or traffic collision avoidance systems, you know, you, you have to look at, well, you know, we know for sure that the A350 would have had TCAS on their airplane. We have no idea what the Coast Guard airplane had. It could be expected that they too would have had enhanced ground procs and of course TCAS. The question is, why wouldn't the TCAS warn the pilots that, hey, there's something on the runway? One, because the target isn't moving. And depending on you know whether or not they actually had the transponder on versus in a standby mode because they hadn't been cleared for takeoff yet, that is the Dash 8, no longer, you know, you're not transmitting a, a, a beacon code for TCAS to really identify. So they're going to have to look at all of these particular elements. But John, you brought something up early on, and that was, you know, the communication. Typically, when I'm sitting right next to the runway, I'm listening for airplanes that are possibly inbound to the runway that I'm getting ready to take off on or at least taxi onto. And even after I've been cleared, for uh, departure, you know, I'm looking up the flight path to make sure there ain't nothing coming in. And then, of course, I'm listening to see if, in fact, that particular airplane, even if I do see an airplane on final, is it coming to the runway I'm getting on or is it coming to a parallel runway? Now, we know from the pictures, like Todd was talking about the aerial, that the Dash 8 was squarely on the runway. It was pointing away from um, the final approach segment. So there's no way the Dash 8 crew would have seen anything behind the airplane. 
the problem here is, is that when they join the runway, they taxied onto the runway inadvertently because when you read the transcript, it looks like they believe they're still on a taxiway when in fact they were on the runway. And so they probably were doing other duties as assigned, maybe running a checklist, talking about what they were going to do, where they were going to go, and weren't really plugged into listening to those aircraft that were uh, cleared to land on, I think it was three, four, right. The, the runway that they were getting ready to take off on. So there's a lot of human factors elements here uh, to be dissected. Um, and so when we talk about communication, we really have to, you know, why was there confusion? How familiar was the Coast Guard pilots with operating at that airport? Why did they mistakenly think that they were still on a taxi when, in fact, they were on a on the runway? And um, and so all of these elements need to be developed fully to really understand the root cause or causes for this particular accident. Yes. The story continues. The investigation continues. And we will be a week or two in this before all the facts at the scene are developed. And by that, I mean the facts as they pick apart the two airplanes and go over all the details. And then, then they'll go back to start the analytic process and also start to explore additional information based upon what they found already. And, now, and, and I think along that same point, John, you know, additional information. We have yet to know what was on the cockpit voice recorders of both aircraft that could shed some, you know, even better light as to what was transpiring in both cockpits. It's obvious that the JAL crew was in the, in the final approach phase. Of course, you know, they're below 500 feet. Now they have requisite tasks and callouts that they have to do. But what was the Dash 8 crew doing in preparation, knowing that they were probably going to be cleared for takeoff shortly, were they running checklists? Were they, you know, again, we have sterile cockpit rules for uh, for flight, and that's universal. So were they abiding by a sterile cockpit environment, or were they distracted by other uh, non-appropriate or, or non-flight-related uh, discussions and that kind of thing that took their attention away from the duties at hand or what was going on from a situational awareness perspective. And on the, uh, on the recorders, uh, during the press conference, I, I think happened the night of the event, it was said that the recorders, both recorders from the A350 were recovered. I've yet to hear anything about recorders from the Dash 8 being recovered. Also, uh, this was an Airbus aircraft, but in an investigation, any number of countries may be involved. And apparently the NTSB is being called in because the manufacturer of the uh, recorders on the E350 was a U.S. company. So I'm looking forward to seeing if, A, there were cockpit force recorders or flight data recorders or both on the Dash 8, B, if they were recovered, and C, who's analyzing them. Yep, absolutely. And, and one of the things that, uh, you know, we also have to talk about, we talked about it off air. What language were they all speaking? Were they speaking native language, Japanese? Were they speaking a dialect of Japanese? Were they speaking the universal aviation language of English? What was transpiring as far as those communications? Did that lend itself to some sort of confusion? Because again, it's obvious that the Coast Guard crew 
was confused. But what led to that confusion? The fact that they didn't know they hadn't flown in and out of that airport, the fact that they were taking off from an intersection uh, taxiway to the runway rather than at the very end. And of course, you know, what other information or lack of information did that crew have? There were notums published, but it was a, uh, a notum that was published for a three-month span talking about certain lighting configurations at the airport were going to be inoperative. Did they pay attention? Did they understand that? Did they know where that you know, those in-op lights were? Which, when you read the notum, included Charlie 5 taxiway where they were supposed to hold short. And on the, what the pilots knew and when they knew it, uh, one of the other reports I read yesterday was uh, stating that when the captain, the only survivor of the Dash 8, was recovered and heading to the hospital, he was speaking as though he was not aware of what happened. He said, hey, the back of the airplane exploded and I can't find the rest of my crew. So as uh, you've mentioned before, there's a certain kind of amnesia that may happen when there's a traumatic event. And the amnesia may extend for several seconds or longer. So it's unclear how much the captain of the Dash Shade can tell. And also getting back to the transcript, we've been able to find a typewritten transcript of what took place. But I have not seen, nor am I aware of, the actual audio transmission. Now, of course, universally, what is on the cockpit voice recorder is not something that, that is released to the public, the actual audio recording itself. But the air traffic control transmissions, certainly there are many uh, organizations out there, and YVTC.net is one of them, not an advertiser, but I've used them repeatedly. And they have live streams of air traffic control transmissions all over the world. I like to know if there is one out there of that airport at that time around the accident took place. Yeah, these are all things that, uh, you know, not only our interest of the three of us, but of course, to our audience and to the aviation industry as a whole. Because again, these accidents, while they are tragic and they are definitely noteworthy for a period of time, it is all about the lessons learned, the prevention. Why do we have in this day and age another accident similar to the one John was talking about that happened at LAX. Um, we've had other airplanes where they have collided during a uh, takeoff and a potential departure or standby departure. I mean, why are they still happening with all the technology we're putting into aircraft, all the technology we're putting into control towers to monitor the airport surface? Why are these accidents still happening? And, and I think that is, you know, is a question that really needs to be answered. And is, is the human the common denominator that is the weakest link? Because a lot of people have always said or tried to make the, the point, even going into the future, let automation fly the airplane, take the human out. It can do better than the human. You know, that discussion could again come up with some sort of automated process of tracking airplanes and having, you know, the human monitor, but not be the sole source or primary source of uh, monitoring the movement of airplanes on or even vehicles on the airport surface. And, and again, you know, is this technology universal around the world? Are there shortcomings with the system? Were the air traffic controllers properly trained to use this kind of technology? All of these questions need to be answered because if there is, if this is a one-off, okay, 
now you deal with it as a one-off. But if it's a systemic problem, now that takes a greater look. It takes a greater responsibility and regulatory action, whether it's from the Japanese and the Japanese Aviation Authority, or is this something that needs to be addressed universally, globally, through the aviation community, through an uh, organization like ICAO? You know, there's one one last point that we touched upon quite a bit in the last show, and we haven't mentioned that, and that was the evacuation of Zeroplane. And today there was some announcements made uh, by different authorities. One authority said that the evacuation took 20 minutes. Uh, Japan Airlines, in their announcement, said it took 18 minutes for the last person to come off the airplane. That is unacceptable. And that's, you know, 90 seconds is the evacuation. So that needs to be uh, taken a good hard look at to see what happened there. And, you know, they did a good job. Everybody got out. Nobody got hurt. But we can't leave it right there. This this accident is going to produce mountains of data that you can only get when there's an accident. And it's going to have all the different specialties that are working in, on the airplane uh, back in the books back at the data to see what happened, what worked as specified, what didn't work the way they were expected it to work. And that comes from either the composites, the burn-through rates, uh, the breaking, the vision, all the instruments we've talked about, and the process of how we got our surviving passengers off the airplane. Maybe, maybe this was going to work out that this was just a very fortunate sequence of events for those passengers. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing's going to happen on the next one. And we need to know what went right and what went wrong in that evacuation so that we can make sure that the procedures are in place, that, that only the right ones stay with us. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, John, because um, after the show that we did, um, we started talking about some of the, the uh, evacuation procedures or processes. This particular event was was good from the standpoint that the airplane stayed intact during, of course, the initial evacuation. It stayed upright. And based on the videos that have been posted on the Internet, uh, people that were um, you know, shooting video during the evacuation. Yes, there is some light colored smoke in there. It wasn't black, thick smoke that would have obscured visibility so that they could initiate the evacuation. And of course, the cabin light, cabin lighting was still on, so that helped people visually see where they were going. But that's the luck of the draw because this airplane could have rolled over very easily. And now you have the tube upside down, so you're not walking on the floor, you're walking on the ceiling. And of course, the emergency floor lighting is no longer beneath you, it's above you. And oh, by the way, Everything that was in the seats has now come raining down on you. Of course, you have all of the overhead cabin space or, you know, the, the luggage space is now at your feet. And now that tube could be black. That is the visibility, very restricted. One of the other key things here is whenever there is smoke and fire, you don't stand up because smoke and fire rise. The heat rises to the crown of the airplane, as does the smoke. And of course, you're going to have better visibility crawling on the floor, not standing up with your head in a cloud of smoke. So 
as a passenger, you should realize these things. You need to make that assessment. You need to have that situational awareness. You may have to crawl to find yourself in, uh, you know, moving to an exit rather than walking. The other thing about seats, the seat design, a lot of these seats, well, by certification standard, all of these seats are required where you can actually break the seat back forward. So if for whatever reason you can't go down an aisle, you can actually kick the back of the seat and flatten it. They're designed to do that for egress as well. These are the kinds of things that an informed passenger should know or should at least have in the back of their mind, especially frequent travelers like the three of us, um, where we know that because it's second nature. And when you don't have folks that fly on a regular basis, they may not know that, but it is good information. That's why passenger briefings from the flight attendants are so important. And that situational awareness is going to be the difference between life and death or serious injury. Yes. Well, it's just story is going to continue because we've only got partial facts. Even though we have more today than we had yesterday, we still, the story will continue for probably a week. So stay tuned. We will be doing an update show again. Uh, as soon as we get some meaningful information to talk about. So, Todd, with that little summary, I will leave you with our second to last word. Well, I think I have a decent one today in that uh, today we talked about, obviously, the accident that happened this week and also when it happened back in 1991. And uh, although we were all around and in, in the industry at that time, there are some people in our audience who were not even alive then. You say, why do you keep referring to these ancient uh, events? Well, the last year we referred to we referred to events that happened over 40 years ago. It's not because we're history lovers. It's because the lessons that were learned then are in a sense timeless in that if they happened before and now they've happened again, either the mistakes that were made or the circumstances that happened back then, then that is a learning tool that is absolutely relevant to what we're doing right now. That's a great point, Todd. Excellent point. So try to top that one, John, with the last word. <laughs> Well, since we have a lot of pilots in our audience, I would remind them all about this holding shot of the runway before you get out on it. And also, to Greg's point, about as you're getting out on the runway, look in the direction that the airplanes would be coming from to make sure that there's nobody on approach to the runway you're about to put yourself on because air traffic controllers do make mistakes. Pilots do make mistakes. And even the person taxing the airplane out may not have had the right clearance to be there. So you really have to keep your head on the swivel, as I often say, and you have to be listening to all the, the conversation that's going on. Eyes, ears are all very important when you're on the ground taxiing an airplane. And if you get out there and you manage to take off safely, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube... We're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments.
and be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.